So what does a ship, a land, a bear, and the church of Ephesus have in common? They're all mothers. Now, when I say mother, of course I don't mean like a birthing parent, right? When we use the term mother in this way, we're really saying something larger that's serving, protecting, caring for something smaller. Uh, Just like a mother bear protects and nourishes its cubs, so the mother land does for its colonies, or the mother ship does for the smaller craft. And that's how the church of Ephesus was functioning at the time the book of Revelation was written. Now, if you were here last week, uh, you may remember that we started a new series titled Under Review. We're going to be looking at uh, the reviews that Jesus gave to the seven churches found in Revelation chapters 1 through 3. He's pulling back the curtain, if you will, and revealing how God sees things. And so this week, we're looking at the first church. We're looking at the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was the metropolis of Asia. It was the fourth largest city in the world at that time, and the church there held a level of prominence among churches, which is partly why it's addressed first. And so the question we're asking ourselves tonight is this. What might Jesus have to say to the mother church of Ephesus, and how might might we be like that church? And so we're going to use the classic reviewer's layout. We're going to look at the pros, the cons, and then the point or the conclusion, what we should do about it. So the pros, we find this in the first two verses. He says, I know your works. You toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. I know you are enduringly patient and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Like any good reviewer, Jesus has like an opening handle. Uh, Each time we look at at one of these letters, you'll notice that he opens up saying, I know your works, and then begins to explain what these works are. In our text, he highlights two things that the church in Ephesus really has going for them. First, they have patient endurance. And this is that inner fortitude that enables someone to stand up for what's right or what they believe is true, even if it goes against popular opinion. Patient endurance is what the founding fathers were claiming to have when they signed the Declaration of Independence, that they were, in fact, resolved, no matter what came, that the colonies should be free, which is what we just celebrated Sunday, right? And yet, I'm pretty sure that we wouldn't really have celebrated if they hadn't toiled, which is the second thing that the Ephesian church is commended for. Uh, To toil here means to labor at something in such a way that it produces results. It pays off. In other words, patient endurance isn't really that great if it doesn't lead to or produce something. The founding father's resoluteness is commendable, but chances are we wouldn't commend it if it hadn't birthed a new nation. And so this is what the church in Ephesus is commended for, and here's how it was playing out. They couldn't bear with evil, and they were testing people that were claiming to be apostles and found them to be false. Their patient endurance was playing out by how they defended the truth, uh, which was actually something the apostle Paul charged them to do many years earlier. So the last time he shows up in Ephesus before his execution, the apostle Paul admonishes them in Acts chapter 20, 
verses 28 through 31, to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And that is exactly what the church in Ephesus did. They had been on high alert, testing any, any teacher who claimed to be from God, and if they found it to be false, they shut it down. Their patient endurance had paid off. And not only had they kept false teaching at bay, but given their prominence as the mother church, they were also protecting and caring for a number of churches in the province. The mother church was doing great things. So what could Jesus possibly have against them? That's verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. As Jesus examines the church, he finds them lacking something that they once had, love. And we need to unpack this a little bit because we can draw some wrong conclusions of what Jesus means. Some people have read this and concluded that the Ephesians weren't believers. And that really makes zero sense because Jesus is writing to his church. They are his. They are believers. Uh, others have concluded that, that the Ephesians have become this numb church with zero love for anyone or anything. I guess zombie Christians, if you will. Uh, and I think that's a little closer to Jesus' complaint, but it still misses the mark. Jesus' problem with the Ephesian believers wasn't that they didn't have love, but they had abandoned their first love. It is quite clear from Jesus' accommodations in verses 2 and 3 that the Ephesians do actually love something. They love truth. They have been declaring and defending it. The problem is they love truth. See, now, I'm, I, I'm not hating on orthodoxy, on believing the right things, and neither is Jesus. In verse 6, at the end of the cons section, he writes this, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the Nicolaitans were this heretical group that had infected other churches at the time. We'll say more about them later because they show up again. The point being is simply, even in the midst of his critique, he's still commending them for their adherence to the truth. Adhering to the truth is a good thing. The problem is the place that truth held in their hearts. Jesus is saying that they love truth more than they love God or they love others. They've abandoned their earlier love and they have replaced it with a love for orthodoxy, for being right. Once again, I have to stress this. Do not mishear me. I'm not saying that we should play fast and loose with the truth for the sake of love. What Jesus is going after here is a heart attitude that by elevating truth above all else, the Ephesians had become very, very proud. Because pride and truth go very close together, don't they? Whenever you know the truth, you become proud of knowing the truth. And we like others to know that we know the truth. And we look down upon them because they don't know the truth that we know. Truth becomes a type of currency that purchases our importance which is what happened here. The Ephesian church was the watchdog, the keeper of truth, and it became essential to their identity. And whenever truth becomes a means to elevate ourselves, it inevitably crushes everyone else. 
Uh, this actually played out in a very personal way for me whenever Emma and I got married. So we got married, we were young, we were trying to figure out this whole marriage thing, and we knew that couples ought to study the Bible together. And so we tried. Uh, but it fizzled out quite quickly because every time Em would say something, I, I would feel the need to correct her or to be more precise than she was. And at the beginning, I thought I was doing a good thing. I was making sure that the truth was said. But in reality, <laughs> uh, all I was doing was feeding my own pride and simultaneously crushing her. See, uh, if our highest love is truth, if the thing we derive all of our value from is truth, then everyone will eventually become collateral damage because we always have to be right. And a church like this will both destroy its witness and itself. Same goes for individuals. And so what's the solution? What's Jesus' Jesus's conclusion on what we should do? Well, he spells that out for us in verse 5. He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. See, Jesus wants them to keep doing what they're doing, but he wants them to do it grounded in love. He wants them to repent of their pride in their thinking that they are morally superior because of their orthodoxy. And the way that truth gets brought down from an ultimate thing back to a good thing is to remember. Remembering is both the catalyst for repentance and humility. We have to remember two things. We have to remember who he is. And that's why the opening of this letter is so important. Did you notice how Jesus introduced himself? He said that he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you were here last week, you remember that's Im apocalyptic imagery for the seven churches he's writing to. The church in Ephesus is not the watchdog. They are not sustaining the church. Jesus is. They are in his hand. And that's a very important lesson to grasp. One time I was having lunch with a professor. I was freaking out because... Uh, I was afraid that I could, or I would, incorrectly interpret scripture and teach it wrong one day. And he listened quite kindly, and then with a great deal of sarcasm said, Caleb, Jesus has been building his church for 2,000 years. Do you really think you have a word that can crush that? But it's true. Jesus is the one who builds, sustains, protects, watches over, builds up his church. We might have a part to play but it doesn't rest on our shoulders. We have to remember who holds everything. We have to remember who he is, but then we also have to remember who we are. And this is why he keeps making reference to their first love. He's inviting them back to replay their conversion, to remember who they were. Think about it. When we accept Jesus as our savior and king, what do we acknowledge? that we're sinners, that we are on the wrong side of truth, that we are God's enemies deserving judgment and death. This is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 6, that all of us in some way are in rebellion against God. Then he says in verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is our reality. We were sinners saved by grace. 
We're not chosen because we figured it out or because we, are, uh, we were able to grasp the truth. We are chosen out of God's goodness and his love for us. And, and that changes the way we interact with both the truth and with each other. Not as arbitrators, but as those who have experienced the greatness of the truth. And so this is what I want us to process going forward. How do you engage in truth-telling? My guess is that some of you need to be challenged to be a little bit more like the Ephesians are commended for. Perhaps you need a little more uh, patient endurance for the truth. But I think all of us need to be challenged to speak the truth from love and not superiority. Our speech has to be motivated by a concern for the other person, not a concern for ourselves. And this will only come about when we humbly remember our state before Christ died for us. I think the Apostle Peter sums it up quite nicely uh, in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 when he writes, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Set him apart. Remember who he is. And then always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to, say, put to shame. And so can I just challenge you to reflect on how you share truth and do so in a way that reflects the great love God has for you.